Please remain standing for the reading of Scripture. This morning we'll look at John chapter 8, and I'll read verses 2 through 11. While you're turning to that, just a brief comment. In some of your Bibles, it may read, The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Um, There's a lot involved here with textual criticism. Um, My simple response is, uh, yes, it might not be found in the earliest manuscripts, excuse me, um, but in the providence of God, He has seen fit that this passage would persevere and be found in our text 2,000 years later. Um, So the vast majority of evangelicals see no reason um, not to take this as inspired Scripture. So with that brief comment, uh, John 8, 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. It is a glorious passage of Scripture. Father, I ask for your strength to display the glory that is found here. How can a mere man help the people of God see the glory of God's grace in the gospel? Father, only by the help of your Holy Spirit. So I ask for your Holy Spirit to work mightily so that we would see the beauty and the majesty that is found in this passage so that we could rejoice in our salvation. Father, work mightily. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are different uh, theological questions that I hear again and again. Uh, one of the questions that comes up periodically, and it's a good question, and the question is, are all sins the same? Are all sins equal? And my answer is yes and no. <laughs> and if it sounds like I'm equivocating, I'm not. Um, yes, in the sense that all sins deserve the wrath of God. 
All sins deserve death. So in that sense, yes, all sins have violated God's holy standards and deserve just condemnation. But on the other hand, no, all sins are not the same in the sense that they are not all equally bad. Some sins are weightier than other sins. One example of this comes from Matthew 23.23. Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And it comes in that passage where Jesus says seven times, Whoa, 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 whoa. I think that was seven. I lost track. <laughs> but this is what we read in Matthew 23.23. 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. That means they tithe. They take one-tenth of their tiny little spices and they're very careful to, to give that to God because the law required a tenth of everybody's earnings to be given to God. And they wanted to make sure that they gave of God even of their tiny spices because they didn't want to violate the law. He says, you tithe on these spices and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see what he's saying? Justice, mercy and faithfulness are the weightier matters of the law, the greater matters of the law. And then he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Yes, you need to obey the whole law of God but you ought to have done the greater matters of the law, the weightier matters of the law, the more significant matters of the law without neglecting the tinier matters of the law. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And I'm sure that got a chuckle in the first century as well. It is humorous. Uh, supposedly, there are 613 commandments in the Torah in the law of God. And I say supposedly because this is what you see everywhere. Uh, but I have yet to see a list. Maybe there is a list. I haven't seen it. Um, I think someone counted and everybody else said, sounds good to me. <laughs> because they didn't want to take the time to count all the laws. But supposedly there's 613 commandments. And you could number those from the least to the greatest. Just for fun, do you want to know what the least commandments in the law is? According to the Jews, the least command in the law of Moses is Deuteronomy 22, 6 and 7, which says, If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. The smallest commandments in the law of Moses. Now, we may disagree on the role or application of the Old Testament law for today. Um, that is a big subject. But I hope that we can all agree that God's moral standards do not fluctuate over time. I hope we can all agree that God's moral standards do not 
ebb and flow like the ocean's tides. Today, he's really against murder and adultery, but maybe he won't be a little later. Yes, he used to be really upset by idolatry, but now he's not that bothered by it. No, I hope we can all agree that God's moral standards come from His holy, righteous character, and they do not change from day to day or from age to age. They are absolute. They are immutable, and they are as stable as Mount Everest. They're not going anywhere. I hope we can at least all agree on that. So we might wonder, so what's the problem? The problem is that we live in America, a post-Christian culture, a post-modern culture, a humanist culture, an immoral culture, a socialistic culture, an individualistic culture, a materialistic culture, and I could go right on down the list. And the problem is, because we live in that type of a culture, we breathe its air, which means we imbibe the cultural values and they conflict with God's Word. And all of us have a mingling, if we're Christians, of God's Word, God's standards, and the cultural standards, and they mingle together, and we have to sort out the standards. And that's not always easy to do, because a lot of the standards that we imbibe, that we take in, we take in subtly, imperceptibly, we don't even realize that we've taken in the values of our culture, and they become our own values, and we don't even realize often that they're a front to God's Word. And come... So we come across different passages and we go, whoa, wait a second. And sometimes when I'm preaching or teaching, I have to sort out these, these values so we can understand passages. One example that I like to use is from Genesis 9. It's after the flood and Moab plants a, a vineyard and we're told that he gets drunk and everyone goes, oh, Moses got drunk. And we're told that he's laying naked in his tent. And then his son Ham comes in, sees his father's nakedness, snickers, goes out and tells his brother that he sees the old man sprawled out. And we look at that passage and we're upset by what? Noah's drunkenness. How could he do such a thing? Now, I want you to know that drunkenness is wrong. The Bible is very clear about drinking too much alcohol that God has given. The Bible is very clear. But what we seem to overlook, that the Bible is also very clear about the rebellion of children, specifically older children, adult children who know better. So when you read the Old Testament and you look at the varying sins and you see rebellious children, drunkenness, do you know which one is greater? It's not even close. By far, rebellious children is much more serious than drunkenness. But in our culture, we have reversed those because we've bought into the myth of adolescence and we think children are going to be children. You know that all children go through this period of rebellion and we just think it's normal when the Bible says it is not normal, it's sin and it's wicked and it is one of the weightier sins in the Bible. So when we read that passage, we should go, how could Ham do such a thing to his father? And when we have that understanding, then when we read 
Moses waking up and cursing Ham's son Canaan, we understand that that's appropriate. We wouldn't be shocked or appalled by the curse. We would understand that it's appropriate. Ham was a bad son, so he is cursed by God with a bad son. You reap what you sow. So we need to realize that God's Word has to help us with our values. Think of what some like to call the desert island test. If we were stranded all alone on a desert island with nothing but palm trees, sand, and a Bible, what values would we come up with? What laws would we come up with? Well, we would come up with a list of lesser laws and greater laws. And you might wonder, well, how do we determine which laws are greater? And there's many ways in which we could do that. For example, frequency. Uh, Some commandments are repeated again and again and again because God wants to make sure that we don't miss them. Uh, Other commandments um, we are seeing have great consequences, like the one I just mentioned with the rebellious son. We would see, wow, that's serious. Look at the consequences for generations to come when you're a wicked son. Uh, others, would, we would see that are weightier matters of the law by the terminology that are used. Some sins are referred to as an abomination to the Lord. Not all sins are elevated to the level of abomination. And we would see, wow, there's some sins that God is so repulsed by. He refers to them as an abomination. And then we would see that some sins are so bad, they are elevated to the level of crime. All crimes in the Bible, not in our culture necessarily, but all crimes in the Bible are sins. But not all sins are elevated to the level of crimes. So we would see that some sins are so bad that they're actually crimes that the state should be aware of. And some of those crimes are so bad that they call for execution. And when we saw that, we would realize, wow, these are at the top of God's list. Adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, blasphemy, rebellious adult children. We would see, wow, those are among the worst of all the sins in God's law. And here's the problem. Many Christians find that embarrassing. And let me be honest. I find them a little bit embarrassing. And why is that? Again, because we have taken in the values of our culture and there's such a conflict with what God says that there's actually tension between what we think is right, what we think is appropriate, and what God says. And often there's a collision. And we're uncomfortable with what we find in God's law. Now, this is a necessary background that we keep, need to keep in mind because as we'll see, the scribes, And the Pharisees, as well as Jesus, take God's law very seriously. And we may find that surprising. Let's look at how the passage is set up. In verse 2, we saw that early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple and all the people came to him. 
And he sat down and he taught them. That was his normal custom. And then we read, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And then John tells us, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Uh, Almost certainly, this is a premeditated setup. This is a well-thought-through test. And they are using not only the women, the woman, excuse me, but they're using the woman to get to Jesus. And both are being set up. Let me begin with the woman. You'll notice in verse 4 that they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The New King James Version says, This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And we should take that very literally. Verse 5 says, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. The law referred to here, you may have it in an ear cross reference, Deuteronomy 22.22, Leviticus 20.10. That's what we find in the law. But the law is very clear that there need to be two or three witnesses who saw the couple in the act. Not just in a compromising situation, but actually copulating. Now, for that to have happened, almost certainly it must have been set up to catch them in the actual act of adultery. Otherwise, they would not have two or three witnesses. Now, in order for them to execute lawfully, Again, it requires not just a compromising situation, but actually being witnesses of what had taken place. And it is very doubtful, highly doubtful, that the scribes and the Pharisees, two of them or more, just happened to walk in on this couple, you know, and they said, wow, look at the opportunity that has just fallen into our lap. And then they said, Why don't we take this woman and go to Jesus? And then we can ask this question of Jesus and to see what he thinks should be done with this woman. Very, 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 let me say it again, very, very, very doubtful that that's happened. Almost surely this was premeditated conspiracy. They trapped not only the woman, but they trapped the woman so that they then could use her in order to trap Jesus. You'll notice that someone is very conspicuous by their absence. You know who's missing in this story? The man. Some of you may not be aware of this, but adultery is an act that involves two parties. The woman has been presented, but we're looking around going, where is the man? 
And this is also interesting. In verse 5, they said, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And that's a good translation in the ESV. The law didn't command Moses to stone such women, but to stone such people. Men and women. But we only have a woman. They're only referring to the woman. And this man, where did he go? I don't know, but I think he was one of the scribes or the Pharisees. I can't prove that, but I think it makes sense in light of the context as we go on. Okay. Now, verse 6, we're told, This they said to test him. We don't have to guess about their motives. John tells us very clearly that they are trying to test Jesus. They're trying to ensnare Jesus. So they ask him, what should be done? And then we read that after the question came, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. The King James Version says that he acted as though he didn't hear them. They're not going to let this go. <laughs> Verse 7 says, And as they continue to ask him. Now, that's very interesting. They ask him, this is what the law of Moses says, What do you say? He bows down. He's ignoring them for the time being. They continue to ask this question. Why do they continue to persist in asking this question? Because they're thinking to themselves, We got him! We got him! There's no way he's getting out of it. This this is actually a beautiful setup in a wicked, nefarious kind of way. <laughs> because they have him trapped. It's, it's one of those questions like if I were asked the, the husbands in this room, have you stopped beating your wife? If they say, yes, I've stopped beating my, my wife, then they've just admitted that they've been beating their wife. If they, they say, no, I, I haven't stopped beating my wife, you say, well, when are you going to stop beating your wife? See, they answer yes or no. Either way, you got them. One of those kinds of questions. If Jesus says, well, if that's the law of Moses says, then, then we need to stone her. Well, then they can run off and tattle to the Roman authorities because the Jews didn't have any authority on their own to bring about execution. That's why we read in our creeds that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate and not Caiaphas, the high priest. They didn't have such authority. They had to go to the Romans. So they can run to the Romans and they can say, Jesus has no regard for your law. He's trying to overthrow that. But if Jesus answers, that's what the law of Moses says, but we can't carry that out, then they can run to the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, and they can say, this man cannot be a prophet from God. He has no respect for the law of Moses. He disregards the law of Moses. So they're thinking to themselves, we got him. We got him. Oh, this is delicious. We got him because either way he answers, he's in trouble. So there is no way they are letting him off the hook. So what is Jesus going to do? Bend down and write in the ground. Some commentators say that he was stalling, buying time. Come on! The Son of God never stalls unless it's intentionally. He doesn't need to buy time as though Jesus 
you know, stalling down and doodling, thinking, okay, ooh, this is a good one. What am I going to say? Ooh, uh, Lord, help me. No, nonsense. So what is he writing? There's, there's the other. What is he writing in the ground? Aren't you just dying to know? It's like when we were kids, you know, and we would play football. And we'd say, okay, everybody huddle up. You know, and we'd write down, write down the play. And I'll hike it here. You're going to line up over here. You're going to do a fly. You're going to go over here, down and out. You know, you're on your plays, and then you cross it out so the other team can't see as though they could see it. But, you know, you're like, what, what, is, what is he doing down there? Is he putting together some kind of strategy? What is, what is he writing? Let me give you some of the options. This is what some commentators have said through the ages. He's writing Exodus 31.18, which refers to the Ten Commandments. And this is very interesting. Which God wrote with what? His finger. Isn't that an interesting connection? Jesus writes, and we're told, with his finger. Just like the Ten Commandments were written with the finger. Others have said that he wrote down Jeremiah 17.3, which says, Those who turn away from you, talking about the Lord, will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Some say, what was Jesus doing? Writing down their names because they have turned away from the Lord. This is what I think. This is the third option. I think we do not know what Jesus wrote. (laughs) Nor do we need to know, nor will we ever know, Till we get to heaven and we ask Jesus, okay, what did you write in the dirt? Um, we do not need to know. Um, if we needed to know, we would be told. What's important is not what he wrote with his finger, but what he said with his lips. And this is what he said in verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Several observations, very important. First, Jesus does not abrogate the Old Testament law. Jesus does not say, well, that was what the law of Moses said to do, but I have brought grace and truth. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. He doesn't pit grace against law. There was law and grace in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. There was law and grace under the New Covenant. People act as though there wasn't any grace in the Old Testament. Are you kidding me? We see it in the very third chapter. God said, do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat from it. God had said, from the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God confronts Adam. God says, cursed is Adam. should have been going like this because God said on that day you're going to die. He should have been waiting to be struck with the curse of God. But God instead curses the ground. What is that? Mercy and grace because he deserved to die. But God was gracious. He died spiritually, but God let him live on physically. Because God was gracious. Law and grace are seen in both covenants. And as we saw in Sunday school, in Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. 
Now next, notice, he does not abrogate the law of Moses. He sides with the law of Moses, and his words are direct reference to Deuteronomy 13.9 and 17.7, which call upon the hands of the witnesses to be the first to put the guilty party or parties to death in order to purge the evil from their midst. That's very important. He says, yes, that's what the law says. And the law also says regarding the execution of such people that the witnesses should be the first to lay their hands on them. So the scribes and Pharisees lay out the law. Jesus continues to follow the law. Third, let me also clarify. When he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone, this doesn't mean those who have no sin whatsoever. G.A. Carson writes, Jesus is saying does not mean that the authorities must be paragons of sinless perfection before the death sentence can be properly meted out, nor does it mean that one must be free even from lust before one can legitimately condemn adultery, although Jesus combined the two. It means rather that they must not be guilty of this particular sin. And I think he is right. So I think what he is saying is, you who are without sin, you who are not guilty of the sin of adultery like this woman, but have testified to this, you are the ones who have the responsibility to carry out the judgment, again, providing that you are not guilty of the same sin. Well, what do they do? Verse 9, but when they heard it, and the King James says they were convicted by their own consciences, uh, but even if you don't have that in your translation, I think their sinful departure testifies to their conviction. But when they heard it, they went on their way one by one, beginning with the older ones. One by one, they walk away. And Carson says, those who came to shame Jesus leave in shame. He had exposed their sin. And now, they have all left one by one. And the picture is of just of Jesus with the woman. There are other people in the temple area, no doubt. But what John is showing us is that there's kind of a uh, focus, sharp focus, if you will, and it's just Jesus and the woman that we're to look at. And then in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she's thinking, No one has condemned me. They've all left. She says, no one Lord. And here's what we need to do with narratives. We need to read between the lines. 
Um, in narratives, we don't always have everything spelled out for us. We'd like to have it spelled out, but it's not always spelled out. We don't always have, and the woman was convicted of her sin, and the woman confessed her sin, and the woman put her faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in Him alone for her salvation. You don't have that in narratives. You have something more organic. You have something more dynamic and lively. So we're, we're forced to read between the lines. But we're given clues usually in the passage when that happens. And there's one very important clue here. She says, no one, Lord, no one at an eye. That's significant. When the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, they refer to him as teacher. They address him as teacher. She doesn't say, no one teacher. She says, no one Lord. And that word can either mean just sir, no one sir, or it can mean no one sovereign Lord. It can be used as an equivalent with God. Like when Thomas said, my Lord and my God. No one Lord. I believe that she recognizes that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Now, remember what happened last week. In case you weren't here, let me remind you of what happened in chapter 7. The chief priest and the Pharisees issued an arrest warrant for Jesus' arrest. They gave it to the officers to go and arrest Jesus. Dutifully, the officers go to arrest Jesus. They listen to him. They come back. The chief priest and the Pharisees say, Why did you not arrest him? And their response is, no one ever spoke like this man. They couldn't possibly arrest him because they were arrested by his teaching. They were absolutely blown away by his teaching. No one ever spoke like this man. This is no ordinary man. There is no way that we can possibly arrest a man like this. This is no ordinary man. Now think about it. This woman has been listening to this interaction between the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus. And not only has she been listening to it, but she has been the center of the conversation. And I believe she is absolutely blown away by Jesus' response. She also is probably thinking, they've got Him, and because they've got Him, they got me, I'm doomed. And she's watching Jesus, and I believe she is absolutely blown away by Jesus' brilliant response, and she recognizes Him as Lord. He is the Lord. It's the only explanation for this. And now, the only thing that she is wondering is, yes, no one has condemned me, but I'm waiting for your verdict. And what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. First of all, we need to realize what right does Jesus have not to bring about condemnation? Who is he? He's just another teacher. No, he's not just another teacher. He is the sovereign judge whose only verdict Count. So when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he is implicitly saying that he is God in the flesh. Just like when he says, I forgive you. 
How can he authorize forgiveness? Only God can authorize forgiveness. Same thing here. He is saying, I no longer condemn you. I forgive you because he is acting in the place of God because he is God. And she recognizes that. If she didn't recognize that, it would mean nothing, right? It would be like just some other teacher saying, no longer do I condemn you. And she would say, it doesn't really matter what you think because on the day of judgment, I'm going to stand before God. But she realized she is standing for God in the verdict. She doesn't have to wait. The verdict has already been given. Neither do I condemn you. Sheer grace. Sheer grace. She's waiting for the hammer to come down. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has set us free from the curse of the law. She is not condemned. I think she can hardly take it in. And then Jesus says, Go. And from now on, sin no more. St. Augustine thought that perhaps this passage wasn't in the earlier manuscripts because some of the religious leaders were afraid that their wives would abuse this passage and think, think that it gives them a license for immorality, for adultery. But the passage does no such thing. Jesus says, go and sin no more. But it's interesting. I think many of us are afraid of this passage. You know why? Because this passage is one of sheer grace in the face of the law. This woman is not condemned because of sheer grace. She is not condemned because Jesus Christ will take her condemnation upon himself. So she, he graciously, freely says you're not condemned. And we're afraid of grace. We are. You know why? Because if you tell people that all they have to do is ask Jesus for forgiveness, well, they'll abuse that. If you say they don't have to do anything but just repent of their sin, admit they're sinners, and ask Jesus for forgiveness in faith, and they can go out and live however they want, they're going to abuse that. They're going to sin so that grace may abound. You know what? Some people will do that. Some people will do that. But you know what? We have to risk it. We have to take the chance. Because the gospel is one of sure grace. There is no other gospel. So we have to tell people, yes, it's grace alone. Now go and sin no more. And this is important as well. The order here is very important. Do not reverse the order. So many Christians even unknowingly reverse the order. They say, don't sin. And then you won't be condemned. That's not what he says. What does this woman do so that she cannot be condemned? Nothing. Nothing. Except own up to our sin. Now go and sin no more. How do we set ourselves free from sin? How do we set ourselves free from addictions, from sins that have a stranglehold on us, from sins with their tentacles that come out and grab us again and again and again? How do we get free from that? Understanding the grace of God. Grace is powerful. And we need to help people understand grace so that when we say, now go and sin no more, they do so because of the freedom they have in Jesus Christ. Too often, even many Christians, even in this room, us, starting at the top, 
think that I'm accepted by God if I, if I live a really good life this week. And I did pretty good this last week, so I, I think God's going to be pleased with me this Sunday. It has nothing to do with that. It's grace. We need to understand our complete acceptance in God because of His grace. And when that grabs a hold of us, transformation will take place. The law can bring condemnation, but the law is powerless in living a justified or a sanctified life. Only the grace of God can do that in the Holy Spirit. And here's something else we need to see. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is not just for adulterers. And by the way, we are all adulterers in this room. And if you say, well, I've never committed adultery. No, you probably haven't. Many of you haven't. You've done worse things. Should I remind you that blasphemy also took upon itself the death sentence, taking God's name in vain? I highly doubt that there's anyone in this room under 12 or 13 who hasn't taken God's name in vain. And if you were to ask me what's higher, blasphemy or adultery, I would say blasphemy. Blasphemy is far worse. Offending God. What a terrible sin. But the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's for believers. We live our lives according to the gospel. And let me give you a great example of how this works. This is from C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility. And C.J. Mahaney talks about his sister, Sharon, his older sister, and her husband, Dave. And Dave became seriously ill. Uh, He had an aggressive uh, tumor, brain tumor, spread rapidly. He went home so that he could die. It was just a matter of time before he would die. And he writes, On one occasion, a relative of Dave was visiting a man who was not a Christian. As he watched Sharon caring for Dave and thought about Dave's relative youth and the children he would leave behind, anger seemed to well up from within him. Anger directed at the God whom Dave and Sharon were professing to believe in. He asked Sharon, Why aren't you angry? She turned to him and answered with the truth of the gospel. Dave deserved hell for his sins, just like you and me. And yet God, in his mercy, forgave him because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dave is going to hell, she said. How could I be angry at God for taking him to heaven? The gospel sets us free from anger, bitterness, depression, unforgiveness. The gospel. The gospel of what? The gospel of sheer grace. When that gets a hold of us and we understand that, we live the Christian life supercharged by grace. And then we go on. Which means we have to understand grace. We Christians have to understand grace. We have to communicate it to our children. We have to help them to understand God loves you and accepts you just like mom and dad accept you regardless of what you do. Grace is powerful. And that's what's presented here. 
There is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now go and sin no more. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the gospel of sheer grace. Father, we thank You for this gospel that sets us free from the condemnation of the law that we all justly deserve. Father, may we live in light of this grace. May we be a church that proclaims this grace. May it not be abused, but may it empower our lives. May it humble us. May it empower us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.